Welcome to NCBR's Elite Agent Podcast, the ultimate resource for real estate professionals looking to elevate their skills, master their craft, and achieve unparalleled success in this incredible industry. Hi, and welcome to NCBR's Elite Agent Podcast, your ultimate resource for building your business and for learning things about the great topics that we deal with day in and day out as real estate professionals. I'm really excited to welcome Adam Thayer to our stage this morning. Adam is going to be sharing with us some issues regarding purchase and sales agreements, some of that language that we like to put in there that maybe we need a little bit of help understanding truly what things mean and how to best make sure that our contracts are clear and concise. Um, I also should have mentioned I'm Rhonda Messenborg and I am your host today. So Adam, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to talking about the wonderful topic of purchase and sales agreements. So Adam, let's get started here on this um, on this great topic. So I'm going to um, just kind of jump right in with some of the, the things that are on our purchase and sales agreement that maybe some of us as agents ha- know a little bit about, but maybe we need a little bit more information to truly understand. So I want to start with one of the big ones, which is time is of the essence. Can you explain a little bit about what that was or what that is, excuse me, how it applies, when we should use it, and maybe when we shouldn't use it? Okay, my God. Right, right, right into the fire here. Uh, time is of the essence. So uh, we're in Rhode Island, and I imagine a lot of the agents that are hopefully listening to this uh, are maybe duly licensed in Mass or Connecticut or Florida, whatever. Other states use this phrase by default, most importantly, Massachusetts. So every Massachusetts purchase and salesman that you're going to see, the ones created by MAR, the Greater Boston Board of Realtors, um, they're all going to have this in there. And that means a date is a firm date. Which, when I tell this to people who are not in the business, they say, why would it not be a firm date? And I have to kind of explain to them that – so in Rhode Island, we don't use this this phrase by default. And it's a custom thing, not a legal thing. It's, we're per, it's perfectly fine to use it. I'm actually using it right now on a deal. Um, in Rhode Island, on our standard forms, there's only two places that it exists. Very recently, and now it can potentially be checked off in the deposit section. Um and then also on some uh, uh, amendments or addenda to the purchase and sales agreement, you can also check it off. That's usually when you're asking for like the 10th extension and people are losing their patience with you. Uh, but really the most important area for us is in the inspection clause. So the reason for that is uh, back in January 1st of 2014, I think it was 2014, um, the state changed the law or they created a law regarding inspections in Rhode Island. And it said that, uh, and the, it literally the the Ryer Purchase and Sales Agreement recites this statute, which says that every buyer gets uh, 10 business days, excluding Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays, to do their, their inspections. And for anybody who was practicing real estate before that, uh, people freaked out because the prior clause said that a buyer had to find a materially deficient condition to get out of the deal. And lawyers love that because that's a subjective phrase. Materially deficient condition to person A is not materially deficient condition to person B. That breeds litigation. It's like a lawyer annuity. Um, so what the uh, the forms committee decided to try and do, um, and Monica's staff and John Sylvia and everybody who did a great job in my opinion, was to um, make this as objective as possible. And what they did was they said, all right, buyer gets 10 business days to do whatever they want to do. 
they can get out for any reason, essentially. And that's what made uh, listing agents freak out because it was like almost like the buyer has a like a get out of jail free card. But the 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 give and take to that, the other side of that coin was that we kind of colored outside the lines for Rhode Island Custom and made that time is of the essence. So it's a very very firm ten business day deadline. Um, so that's hugely important to keep in mind. I've had you know whether it's lawyers or realtors lose track of that date and then it becomes a problem. Um, if there's ever any question about it, like maybe we have like a funky holiday. Um, which speaking of which, um, if you're doing deals in mass in Rhode Island, always keep an eye on victory day and Patriots day because people who are not from those States don't know those holidays exist, but they are state holidays in those two States. And so those arguably count in that, how your calculation there. Um, so if there's any, any question about that, I would always say, put put the actual date that we all agree the 10 business days expires. Um, but again, the reason this is so important is because that is an extremely firm date. And so, it's a it's a sword that you can wield, um, but you have to be careful doing it. Like the one that I'm doing it on, I just brought it into a Rhode Island deal. I have a extremely high dollar closing coming up in December, and the uh, buyers, uh, sorry, the sellers only want to sell to our buyers if they can purchase this other property down the road, which my people are totally fine with. We have a long runway to get to this closing. My clients are concerned that if the other closing gets delayed, they don't want to delay in their closing because this is like a $3 million mortgage and a rate lock extension fee on a $3 million mortgage will be huge. So what we, the give and take we had with the seller side was, listen, we will agree to do this long runway closing. Like we're not going to close until December um, and we're, we're recording this in early September. And we will agree to have this contingency in there that you have to be able to buy property B in order for us to close on property A. But we want to make that closing date time is of the essence <clears throat> because we don't want to get whacked with a $10,000 rate lock extension because we're trying to do a solid for you. Thankfully, the other attorney also practices in Massachusetts as well as Rhode Island, so he's familiar with that time is of the essence process. We explained it to the clients what it meant, and everyone agreed that this was appropriate to use it here. So I, I, I'm trying to, in doing podcasts like this or when I – do whatever, I just chit-chat in closings or I talk to myself alone in my office at night. As I try to spread the word that time is of the essence is not a four-letter word. Real estate closings happen in Massachusetts every day. They figured it out fine. And so just because we're not used to it here in Rhode Island does not mean it's a bad thing. And there are times when we should be using it, which we'll talk about more later. But um, so to understand it and use it when it's appropriate and don't freak out. Love that. And so I'm going to roll right into that next question that's begging to be asked is when should when should we use it? And what happens if when you get to that date and you're not closing? What what happens then? OK, so so when should you use it? I'm going to give you the perfect perfect scenario. Um, let's say and this happened to me. Let's say your sellers, your percent sellers, and they're they're selling a property in Rhode Island on September 10th. And they're supposed to be buying a property in Massachusetts, New York, Florida, anywhere else where there might be times of the essence. You know, very commonly those three states, Mass, New York, and Florida. And they're supposed to be closing on one of those, that property on September 11th or September 12th, immediately after the sale of their Rhode Island property. Now, Rhode Island, in the absence of the phrase times of the essence, both parties are given a quote-unquote reasonable period of time to comply. And in this case, that is too close. However, in those other states... That does not, that's not the case because that other person's sales agreement says times of the essence. So let's say your sellers are getting ready to go and then their buyer says, oh, sorry, I'm not going to be ready to close until September 15th or September 20th. 
Well, in Rhode Island, we don't have the right to force that seller to close because we didn't put time of the essence in that agreement. However, completely without any fault on our seller's part, they're not going to be in breach of their second closing, which is times of the essence in that other state or whatever. And so this this happened to me, um, and it was terrible. And and everyone then turns to you as the realtor or the lawyer involved in the deal, and they want to crucify you because they, how, how could you have let me agree to this? But very frequently, if you're – let's say it's, it's Rhode Island, Florida, and you're not licensed in Florida. You had nothing to do with that purchase and sales agreement. So it's not really your fault, but at the same time, you need to understand this issue so that you can see it coming. So when you're talking to your client and you're initially taking that listing and you're saying to them, hey, you're going to move to Florida, you're going to move to Boston, you're going to move to Manhattan, whatever it's going to be, we need to talk to that other lawyer or that other realtor to make sure that these two deals line up. And if time is – this is the best rule of thumb that I can possibly say. If if there are multiple deals in a transaction, you know, back-to-back closings – if any deal downstream is time is of the essence, every deal upstream from it has to be time is of the essence because the dominoes all have to fall at the same time. And if the fifth domino or the second domino has to fall on a certain date, then the ones behind it have to fall on that date or before it as well. So the best thing you can do is find a lawyer who's licensed in all those states like me who can help you and knows how to handle all those different things so you're not dealing with a million cooks in the kitchen. I'm saying that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but like in all seriousness, if you have somebody who handles Mass and Rhode Island, then you're probably going to want to refer that client to them to handle both deals. What will very frequently happen is they'll sell property A, their proceeds get wired to me, and then I use that money and I hold it for property the closing on property B. I apply their sale proceeds directly to their purchase. And so the money's not, there's less wires going out. There's less chance of an issue happening. The money all stays in one place. And then we just issue them a refund check for any overage. Um, when there are a million cooks in the kitchen is when stuff like this can fall through the cracks and then your sellers end up in breach or vice versa. I mean, this, this can go anyway, but that's the most common scenario. And now everyone's upset that you as the professional in the room didn't advise them that this was a potential pitfall. That's great. And and basically, if you do go past that date, that just means the contract is null and, and void and deposits are returned. So, oh, sorry, before I even say that, one other time that time is of the essence should be used is if you're coming up close to a date for a 1031 exchange where you're, you're, the 1031 will expire if you don't close by a certain date. So throwing that in there before I forgot. Um, to your question, what I always tell people is there is the legal reality and there is the practical reality, like the real world reality. So... Yes. To your point, if times of the essence is in a deal and somebody breaches by not doing whatever they're supposed to do by that date, they haven't terminated due to their inspection clause, so that lapses, or we haven't closed because they <clears throat> they decided to get a loan at the last minute and their lender wasn't ready, whatever. Technically, that side is in breach. Now, what happens at that point is kind of a two-step process. First is legal reality versus practical reality. The legal reality might be that your client was the non-breaching party and they are 100% on the right side of the law and they can pursue this other side for damages. However, if the closing is going to occur one day later, like in Massachusetts, every deal is time is of the essence. If the closing date is September 15th and somebody got COVID or something else crazy happened and we don't close until the 16th, no one is suing over that. I mean, people might be screaming and yelling and they'll flip out and they'll say, this is the worst thing that ever happened to them and they'll, you know, but your job is to talk them off that ledge because three months, six months from now, they're not even going to remember what day they closed. It's when you start talking about a month, two-month delay that people are going to hold somebody in default. <clears throat> so even if you do or you do not have the times of the essence clause, sometimes the practical effect can still be the same because if the, if the delay is short enough, 
the juice isn't worth the squeeze to threaten to sue somebody. By the time you even get into court, that small time period will already have lapsed and you will have already closed. The second part of that calculation is what sort of damages are you entitled to based on the purchase and sales agreement um, if the other side breaches? And this is hugely important. And very importantly, Massachusetts and Rhode Island handle this completely differently. Because very frequently, people will just throw around, we're going to hold on to the deposit. We're going to retain the deposit. And I always tell them, maybe, but maybe not. And so when somebody breaches, there are three types of remedies that somebody can go after. The non-breaching party can go after. One is the deposit. The buyer either gets their deposit back or the seller retains it. That's one measure of damages that you can seek. Two could be additional monetary damages. Maybe you have you you have additional damages above and beyond the deposit. And three are equitable remedies, which are mostly the big one is specific performance, forcing the deal, forcing the party to comply. <coughs> excuse me, and close. And so, <coughs> excuse me. And so, in Rhode Island, our purchase and sales agreement says that either party has a right to all three of those measures of damages. Um, but it's based on actual damages, which I'll explain why that matters in a minute. So, uh, hypothetically, a buyer or a seller, if they're the non-breaching party, has the right to pursue the other side for the deposit, additional monetary damages, and specific performance to force the deal. Massachusetts doesn't do it that way. In their standard forms, they have what's called liquidated damages. Liquidated damages is we're all agreeing now that this is what the damages are if the other party breaches. And usually, that is a deposit. And so, there's no right or wrong way to do this. And there can be certain situations where you wish you had one or you wish you had the other. And I'll, I'll just give you a very quick example. Let's say that I'm selling my house for $100,000 and the and there's a $10,000 deposit. The buyer breaches. In Mass- and a buyer breaches and then I have to now resell the property. In Massachusetts, we don't care what I resell it for or if I ever resell it. I get that $10,000 deposit because they breached. I could resell that property for $200,000 and really have no damages. I still get the 10 grand. I could resell it for $50,000 and have $50,000 in damages. I still only get the 10 grand. So in some scenarios, that's good. If I sold it for a profit, then great. I had no damages, but it's like a windfall. But if I had more damages exceeding the 10,000, I'm not happy because I can't pursue those additional remedies. Rhode Island is the exact opposite. You get actual damages. So in Rhode Island, same scenario. I'm selling my property for 100 grand. The deposit is 10. I resell it for 200,000. I do not get to keep the deposit. I technically had no damages. I mean, this is a very basic example, but I technically had no damages. It was a windfall. I'm glad this first person breached. I have to give that deposit back. However, if I resold it for $50,000, I get to keep that 10 and then pursue the sell- the original buyer for the other 40 for my actual damages. So it kind of depends which side of the coin you're on, which of the two paths you you know you would prefer. But just so you can explain that to your folks that um, it's not you don't just immediately get to withhold the deposit if you're in Rhode Island. Now we had a deal a couple of years ago with um, it was actually with with Connor Dowd. We had a seller where the buyer got uh, nabbed on a wire fraud. It was a cash purchase of a condo, and um, <clears throat> the buyer accidentally wired the money to a scam artist. So we couldn't close. We had to hold the property for another two months before it ultimately resold. And the property was vacant at the request of those original buyers. We had kicked the tenants out. So we ultimately resold it for the exact same amount of money to buyer number two. So what we did was we withheld from the deposit just the carrying cost of the property for the two months. Those were our damages. What taxes and insurance did we pay for two months to hold that property? 
and we gave the those original buyers back who those poor people we gave them back the balance of their deposit so my people weren't damaged unfortunately what happened to the buyers was terrible but if it was massachusetts and we wanted to be heartless terrible people we could have just entirely withheld that entire deposit but that just another thing to just keep in mind when we're talking about okay if somebody breaches what really are your remedies because people just throw around we're going to hold a deposit without actually understanding whether or not they can or not so yeah, I mean that's great advice and I think if you're if you're in that situation it's always best just to uh, call the attorney and kind of talk it through with them to and always refer your your clients to speak with their attorney because as we know um, as realtors we are not attorneys and nor should we pretend or act or give legal advice. Um, so Adam, I'm going to talk about another um, thing in the purchase and sale agreement that I know you're passionate about and we're going to talk about um, inspections for informational purposes only. Um, this has been coming up a lot, especially with the way the market has been in the, in the last couple of years with multiple offers and buyers trying to make their offers attractive, um, more attractive than anybody else. So we see this phrase all the time. Do you, from a legal standpoint, what does it mean? What does it do? Does it do anything at all? I hate it. I hate everything about it. I hate just saying it. I feel like it gives credence to it, even mentioning on this podcast, but we have to because we have to spread the word. It is incumbent upon people like you and I to spread the gospel that this phrase must be eradicated. It is everything about it is terrible, and I will explain why. <clears throat> Let's just say a normal deal. Ron, I'm going to buy your house. I have an inspection contingency, and I do my inspections, and I say to you, well, <clears throat> I want you to do these repairs, or I want you to give me money off the sales price, or I want a closing cost credit, whatever it is. The unspoken second half of that sentence is – or else I will terminate the deal pursuant to my inspection contingency. So my right to renegotiate with you is the same right as my right to terminate. It's one right. It's, <clears throat> it's two sides of the same coin. The phrase um, inspections are for informational purposes only, I think, is trying to split that right in half and say that you can retain the right to terminate, but you waive the right to renegotiate, which, as I just explained, makes no sense. It's the same right. If I didn't have the right to terminate the deal, would you even listen to five words out of my mouth about the repairs I want? No. You tell me, Adam, go pound sand. You bought the property as is. I'm not doing anything. No closing cost credits. No price reduction. No repairs. And so in my opinion, it does absolutely nothing to change the legal rights and responsibilities of the parties. And people are going to say, oh, but the, the buyers can I – mean, they're not going to renegotiate. The seller can always say no. Before that, in the absence of the phrase informational purposes only, the seller can always say no to a request for repairs or concessions or whatever. And if that's in there, they can still say no. So again, there's no change in the legal rights and responsibilities of the parties. Now, then the problem becomes it's it's an ambiguous phrase. I think what most people in the industry mean when they say this phrase or use it is what we just discussed, that the buyer retains the right to terminate but waives the right to renegotiate. But let's just take off your realtor hat or your lure hat and pretend you're Joe Blow or Jane Doe on the street and you heard the phrase inspections for informational purposes only. Doesn't that sound like they don't have the right to terminate? I mean it just sounds like informational purposes only. It makes no mention of being able to still terminate or anything. So I think a lay person, the average person on the street is not going to necessarily have the same understanding that we've come to understand that phrase to mean. That means it's an ambiguous phrase and ambiguity and subjectivity are, have no place in a contract. The whole point of the contract is to remove that. <clears throat> when they changed the inspection contingency 
to remove the materially deficient condition phrase was to remove subjectivity. Now, here we are reintroducing it back in. And I have been waiting for the day when someone was going to sue over this, when someone was going to say, I retain my right to terminate, and the other side is going to say, no, you didn't because it says informational purposes only. And my office just got that file the other day. And it's very obvious we had the text messages from the client who was unrepresented and the listing broker where the listing broker is telling the buyer, no, 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 you retain the right to terminate. And he's saying, I don't think I do based on how this is written. It's really unclear. Can we clarify this? I think the seller is probably going to have a different reading of this than I am. And the realtor just kept saying, nope, everything's fine. Everything's fine. You can sign it. The buyer signed it, then tried to terminate due to inspections. And the seller saying, no, you waived it by putting informational purposes only in there. So I guarantee the person who's going to be left holding the bag is going to be the realtor in that scenario because they're the one that provided this advice. And they knew about the misunderstanding between the two parties and proceeded anyway. Um, so I think this is just, uh, an area that is just ripe for problems. Now there is hypothetically an example of when you might use this phrase. And, uh, Donna Prescott had a file three or four years ago during the craziness, um, where she had somebody who wanted to get in there and they truly just wanted to do informational purposes only inspections. They were waiving their right to terminate. They wanted to renovate the property immediately upon, uh, uh, buying it maybe they're i forget they're a flipper or what excuse me um and so they want to say can we just get in there now truly informational purposes only we just want to get the guys on the job day one and whatever and i'm like wow donna this is actually the only time this phrase might make sense because they and again they were waiving their right to terminate i said you should still say no and the reason for that is twofold one particularly in the past few years when properties have been flying off the market and they're hyper competitive there are people in a certain wealth class and there are flippers who will pay an initial deposit just to get a first look at a property. And they will do something like this where they will waive their inspections. They want to get them for financial purposes only. And they're willing to walk away from that 1000 bucks or that 5000 bucks, whatever they've sent you. Because they know that your seller is probably not going to have the stomach to sue them for the additional deposit or any other damages. And if they get in there and they discover that, oh, X, Y, and Z is wrong... Now they've bolted. You don't have the full deposit, and now you need to update your your uh, seller disclosure because now you've been alerted to some new problem. I've literally had this happen. We had somebody who um, waived all their inspections, and the seller wanted to sell furniture to them. They let the buyer into the house, and the buyer claimed that they could smell black mold and that there's mold in the house, and this was all just to sell some furniture. And the buyer tried to back out of the deal, and it turned into a complete cluster. Everyone wanted to kill each other, and it was just – we we cost ourselves tens of thousands of dollars in the sales price in an effort to sell, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of furniture. So I always tell people, even in the times when it sounds like this phrase might have a place in a deal, I still don't recommend it um, because there's these pitfalls that are there that you might. I mean, I wasn't born knowing this. I have been involved in deals where we have been burned. I've been burned. Realtor friends of mine have been burned. And you learn it and you go, wow, I'll never do that again. I have made those mistakes. So hopefully you don't have to call me. I'll bore you to tears with and days worth of stories, of horror stories. Connor Dowd, Chad Kritzis, Joe Fitzpatrick, Terry Dayton, all the big cojones around here, right? They, we've all been burned, okay? So this isn't something where baby agents get taken advantage of. Even somebody who's done 500 closings can have this happen to them. Um, so I know I just sound like a crazy person, but for the love of God, please do not ever use this phrase. And if you're ever tempted, I can be your sponsor. Call me. We'll talk it through. We'll get you off that ledge. We'll fight that craving. And uh, we'll, your deal will be better for it, I promise you.
That is great advice. So one one last um, question in regards to our purchase and sales agreements. Um, w- the walkthrough property is closing and we're doing a walkthrough. And I know that in the purchase and sale agreement, property is a, supposed to be in broom clean condition. But also there was a repair addendum at some point, maybe talking about inspections, and maybe there were some items that needed to be that needed to be done. Walkthrough happens, maybe some of those items were not completed, or maybe some things are in the house that aren't supposed to be there, or maybe there's some damage in the house that you weren't expecting and that wasn't there at your showing. So now what what happens? What do you do? Uh, that is the very common nightmare scenario for lawyers because the four-letter word of escrow gets thrown around. Um, now, from a realtor's perspective, this is like the best thing ever. Escrow gets the deal done. Everything goes their separate ways. The problem is it's like herpes. You've now the, the lawyer is now infected with it, and it will never go away. It will haunt them the rest of their lives. I have escrows that I have been holding on to for five or ten years. Eric Chappelle and I have one that we're ready to pull our hair out on over. Because it solves the problem in the short term, but it very much does not solve the problem in the long term. So whether it's a septic or anything else like that, you know, we, we've had deals where then there's, there's a dispute over, well, where's the work then sub- subsequently done satisfactorily or, or whatever? Oh, well, I wanted this, but you wanted that. Or we've had pl- deals where there was supposed to be a septic and then, you know, down in Island Park in Portsmouth, the lots are so tiny, you can't really have normal septics down there. We had a deal, we escorted for a septic, and then the best thing they could do was one of those above ground ones, and the buyer flipped out and refused to authorize the release of the escrow. And we said, well, I don't, I, we don't know what to tell you. A normal one can't fit there. This is all they could do. And it, it turns into a complete nightmare. And <clears throat> then the lawyers are left chasing their tails for months or years unpaid to try and resolve something that um, you know was brought up shortly before closing. The other main issue with this is with TRID. So TRID is the kind of closing paradigm, you know, process that we have to go through with residentially financed closings uh, post-2016. And so lenders, generally speaking, will not allow you to show an escrow on a settlement statement. That means it also can't show up on the closing attorney's books because the lender may want to see our ledger or may audit us and they want to see that we dispersed in accordance with the settlement statement. And if the, if the escrow can't be on there, that means the, the closing attorney's office, the buyer's attorney's office can't know about it essentially. And so that creates even more problems where I've had people ask me to do an escrow to you know, close a deal. And I say, well, I, I can't do that. I can't violate the closing instructions that this bank gave me because if they find out I did that, um, I'll be kicked off their list. And this actually happened to me. I, we did a closing in Massachusetts in 2019 where Massachusetts has Title V, Title V, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's like a septic inspection. Rarely in Massachusetts, they will a lender will allow an escrow. A mortgage broker told me on this deal that his office had allowed it. Years later, <clears throat> a paralegal in my office was trying to do a refinance with the same lender, and that lender said that my office had been blacklisted. And I kept trying to find out why, what happened, and they, they said, oh, don't pretend like you don't know. I, I, have, not, I have no idea what you're talking about. They told me that <clears throat> we held an unauthorized escrow. And um, thankfully, my paralegal is a pack rat for emails. This is why you never delete your emails. I don't care what your admin in your office says. Archive them. Never delete your emails. We found the emails with this loan officer where he told us that we could do it. And he even snapped at us for sending the CD to his processor saying, why are you sending it? We said, we're just making sure that they're confirming that they approved the escrow. And he again responded to us, they've approved it. I was able to send that back to this person's office, got us off the blacklist, and I have no idea what happened. I don't know if you got 
you know, reprimanded or what, but that's how serious it can be. And obviously my office, I can't jeopardize my ability to close deals for movement mortgage or bank Newport or whoever it is based on, and I'm sympathetic to the situation. So that <clears throat> gets us in a situation where we have to sign, figure out something else more creative. Maybe the seller is cutting a separate check to a third-party escrow agent or to their attorney's office to be held outside of closing, something like that. Or, and I hate to say this, but like in more minor things where let's say a dishwasher isn't working, very frequently the realtors kick in a couple hundred bucks each just to make the problem go away. I mean, I'm not suggesting that that's fair or that that should happen, but in the heat of the moment, when somebody has their hackles up over something that's seemingly ticky-tack, $900,000 house and the microwave uh, you know, <laughs> the light on the microwave isn't working. You know, then the realtor just goes, I'll buy you a new microwave. Can we please close the deal? And that very frequently is how these things end up going. So it's not a fun situation for anybody to be in. Um, it was easier to handle pre-COVID when the seller had to sit across the table from you at the closing and look you in the eye. And maybe you could just get a check cut right there at the closing table. But with sellers pre-signing documents and then I'm meeting with the buyer, the seller's not here. I am, you know, we're in the moment, like this has to close right now. Um, what is your decision? A lot of times uh, the, the buyers just eat it and they just suck it up and close anyway, or the realtors kick in, or we have to get somehow creative here because there's really no great options when it, when it comes to that kind of stuff, unfortunately. Wow. Thank you so much, Adam. This was this was all such good information and um, it, it's almost like begs for a part two at, at some point. This, this was great. Um, and as, as always, we thank you for your expertise um, and also your humor because you're always really fun to be around. So thank you all so much for joining us today for this episode. And we look forward to bringing you more great topics um, that impact all of our businesses. And until then, be well. Thank you.